Patriots, you might have heard of BlackRock. You probably have a financial giant firm conglomerate. Uh, You might have heard of Larry Fink, its CEO. But what you may not know is just how harmful BlackRock and Larry Fink are for your life. And the antidote, the fix to the damage inflicted by BlackRock and Larry Fink, it's populism. I think we're going to see some economies enter recessions early. Which ones would that be? Well, I think Europe... Just anyone's more sensitive to... The the ones that are more sensitive to this elevated interest rates. And you're you're starting to see a real decline um, in GDP and other... You know, they're they're basically flat now, but can they go into a, a more protracted recession. Whatever the recessions we're going to have, they're going to be quite modest. So I'm yeah. not even that fearful. But the can other I, can issue... I have but, a stat for Let me just say one thing, yes, Danny. Yes, then, because I'll, because then I'll inject the okay, fear. But, but, I, but I believe <laughs> if we have labor shortages, if we're if getting back to this whole social issue of how are we going to be doing this, in many areas you may need a recession to bring down labor demand. And so and I think this is one of the things that's going to impact in the United States. You still have a very vibrant economy. The United States, and, the, and the, as I said, the J-curve of the Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, the IRA, which has huge implications, um, that's going to be creating jobs. And so it may require a more Attracted Federal Reserve, and it may mean by 2025 the uh, the United States economy may be entering a recession. But I don't. Wow, Patriots, Larry Fink, right there. Larry Fink, by the way, in my view, if you ask me why populism and why not globalism, Larry Fink would be Exhibit A. As a matter of fact, he would be Exhibit A, B, C, D, etc. Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock happens to be one of the most powerful people in America and a person who you might not have ever heard of unless you're deeply into this sort of subject matter of of asset managers and corporate governance. And if you have heard of him, you probably don't know that much about him, which is, again, totally understandable if you're not somebody who's deeply into these subjects. But Larry Fink has enormous influence, enormous negative, malicious influence on your life, whether you know, know much about him or not, whether you know who he is or not. And I think at some point, by the way, it'll it'll behoove us to do an entire show on asset management and what big money is doing to really pervert uh, the the success and the prosperity and and the freedom of people in America. We talk a lot about big tech, a lot about big pharma, and those, both of those forces are incredibly dangerous and powerful forces in America. But I don't think we talk enough about big money. That's how I would refer to it as big money, particularly asset managers like BlackRock. Uh, but today's episode is not to dive specifically into BlackRock, you know, or necessarily deeply personally into Larry Fink, but rather to use him as a jumping off point to discuss this really broad question of why populism? Why populism? You know, a lot of us on the populist national right, nationalist right, you hear us railing against globalism, and we should, and we should absolutely make that negative case, make that indictment, that intellectual evidence and data-based indictment of globalism. But I think we also need to make the positive case for populism because it is more than just a reaction. Um, it is more than just negating the abuses of globalism. It is, in fact, in my view, populist nationalism, populist nationalist Americanism, specifically since we are Americans, is a force and an agenda and a worldview to be celebrated and to be promoted and to be studied. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this video. And again, do so 
with evidence and data. Now, speaking of evidence, as I said, let's use Larry Fink as a, as a jumping off point there. By the way, if you notice the Chiron, he didn't speak about it in the clip that we just played for you. But if you notice in the, the Chiron, the banner underneath that was Bloomberg Television. And Bloomberg Television, you know, as much as any network out there, believes firmly in globalism. Mike Bloomberg is a, is a champion, a mogul of globalism, somebody who has thrived particularly in regards to China, as Larry Fink has. And if you notice, Bloomberg in that Chiron in the beginning of the clip there, it says, quote, underinvested in China. Larry Fink says we are underinvested in China. Now, those of us on the populist nationals right, we, we want to head in exactly the opposite direction. We want to decouple from China. We must decouple from China. Uh, it is a crime. It is a tragedy how dependent the United States is today on China. And yet, Fink, the globalist, is saying uh, in, the, in another part of the interview, and the Chiron is reflecting there, that they are underinvested in China. But the most important part of that clip there that I really would like you to pay attention to is when Fink, he, he said this. He said, quote, we want to bring down labor demand. We want to bring down labor demand. Now let's translate that a little bit. What does that mean? It means we want lower pay. It means we want fewer options for you, fewer options for workers, lower pay. Bring down labor demand. So he's essentially admitting that there is a crisis, and there absolutely is, a global economic crisis, uh, but in terms of the United States, a crisis that has been created, created by the unscientific and illogical and in many cases tyrannical lockdowns, all of the exorbitant spending and borrowing that resulted from those lockdowns, then greatly exacerbated by Joe Biden along with collaborationist Republicans, the entire cabal of globalists that really run, unfortunately, our nation's capital. Our nation's capital, which in my view, functions a lot more like the capital from the Hunger Games uh, and treats us like the districts rather than operating as the capital of a self-governing republic the way it's supposed to. So they have created an enormous economic crisis. And their solution to the crisis, because interest rates are rising dramatically, and this out-of-control debt, which, which seemed manageable previously in an era of low interest rates, is suddenly totally unmanageable in an era of rising interest rates. So what's Larry Fink's answer? What's the answer for the globalists? Well, let's bring down labor demand. In other words, you're going to pay for it again. <laughs> you're going to be stuck with the short end of the stick, and in this case, the short end of, of the paycheck, right? Because even if your paycheck is getting larger, and I certainly hope it is, and most people are seeing increases in their paycheck, but not enough, not enough to keep pace for the cost of the goods and services in your life, which means that real wages, which are what matter, real wages adjusted for inflation, are crashing. And despite the fact that this is an era where real wages are crashing, these folks, the globalists say, we want to bring labor demand down. Uh, if you notice there too, he also mentions the IRA, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is one of the worst named bills in history. You know, most bills out of Washington, D.C., and you can kind of use this as a, as a template, as a rule. Generally, uh, the more grandiose the name, uh, the, more, uh, the more that that bill will fail to supposedly succeed, you know, fail in the mission of succeeding its, its namesake, uh, so to speak. And in many cases, head in exactly the opposite direction. It's sort of like uh, the most communist and tyrannical governments in the world always make sure they call themselves the People's Democratic Republic of X. Okay, similar phenomena with Bill. The Inflation Reduction Act does not reduce inflation. In fact, it embeds inflation, it accelerates it, and exacerbates inflation. Um, he also mentioned the Chips Act, something that which I think actually does have some positive aspects to it. But here's the point: 
We wouldn't need a CHIPS Act to bring semiconductor uh, manufacturing back to this country if it hadn't been for decades of globalist policies, which not just allowed, but in fact, greatly incentivized American production to ship overseas, decimating American communities, making us dependent on foreign countries, many of which uh, are highly hostile to the United States, particularly China, and putting us in a position of subservience. As the greatest economy in the world with the greatest military in the world, uh, we don't have the leverage that a superpower is supposed to have, and not just on a, on a grand geopolitical state, uh, uh, state, but also bringing it down to the street level, to the kitchen table level, our people are not living well. They are not living well. We are not thriving. We're not even thriving the way our parents or grandparents did. And that promise that has always been really just part and parcel of the American experience, right? That each generation does better, that the handoff of the baton is always an improvement, that the sacrifices of of uh, an individual or a group of people or a generation are worth it because the future generation does better. That that bargain effectively, that, that grand bargain has been broken right now because young people in this country face a dire future in many ways, politically, culturally, but certainly economically. That is the reality right now. That's the reality in the world. And, and so it's not surprising then that we see a tremendous upsurge in populism, in populism. So, but again, let's talk about it. You know, why, why populism? Well, there are three reasons that I want to tell you populism. And the first is that our ruling class in America right now, unfortunately, our ruling class is garbage. We're going to get into the details on that. The second is the financialization of the economy, the globalization of the economy. It has been terrible for workers. So we have a garbage ruling class, Financialization and globalization have not worked for workers, for regular citizens, particularly those of modest means. And then I want to get into the politics of populism, the third reason to support populism in this country. Let's get into the politics of it, why it matters, why it's effective, and why this movement, in my view, is very, very young. Uh, and you can call it by many names. You can call it the America First movement. You can call it the Tea Party movement. Uh, I'm going to refer to it generally as populism or populist nationalism. And I believe firmly that American populist nationalism is a force in American history that is young, it is growing, and it is going to save this republic. It's going to save this republic. So first, let's get into our, our garbage ruling class. Look, Every society, and this is just human nature, and for those of us who uh, are, are Bible believers, Christians and Jews who subscribe to the, the ideal, the reality, in my view, that we live in a fallen world, in a fallen world, there will always be an elite class in any society. Okay, That is just reality. It's human nature. There will always be a ruling class. And I prefer to say ruling class versus elites because elite, I think, at least has the connotation that there's something laudable about these folks, or there's something to admire about them. And in very many cases, they're not admirable at all. They've only achieved their ruling class status in many cases through chicanery and through dishonesty and through corruption, not through skill. Some of them have through skill, but every society has a ruling class. Now in America, thankfully, two things historically until this present era, two things really marked our ruling class. Number one, it was very dynamic, lots of turnover right? So not an aristocracy, not a set, staid ruling class, but rather a dynamic one uh, where people basically through 
their own volition, through their own action, their own expertise, their own hustle, their own luck, some combination of all the above, would cycle in and out of the ruling class, uh, particularly when it comes to the economic side of things. So that is traditionally where America was, um, that we had a, a dynamic ruling class. We don't have that nearly as much today because we have in many ways slid into an oligarchy. And the oligarchy, uh, meaning the, the rule of the few, not a dictatorship, at least not yet, um, but the oligarchy, the rule of the few, unfortunately, has figured out a lot of ways in fusion with government, with state administrative power of, of the, the all-powerful administrative state, uh, to guard and protect their position such that the ruling class of the United States is not nearly as dynamic as it used to be. But the second thing we used to have, uh, and this is crucial, in the ruling class in the United States is there used to be a sense of patriotism that was deeply embedded. Um, and that folks who did very, very well in this country, even at the very top of the ladder of power in this country, whether we're talking economic power, cultural, political, or in some cases, all of the above, um, there was a sense of duty, a sense of mission, a sense of American exceptionalism that was appreciated and celebrated by the ruling class of the United States. That is simply no longer the case. For the vast majority of the, the power brokers, the potentates of the American ruling class now, they, they feel far more kinship with ruling class folks in other countries than they do with their own countrymen. That is simply the reality right now. They, they feel far more uh, kinship, alliance of interests, affection, um, camaraderie with ruling class folks in Monaco or London or Switzerland and in some cases, even in Beijing, than they do with their neighbors and relatives uh, in Beaumont, Texas. That is the reality right now in America. And it didn't used to be that way. And as some proof of that, let me give you uh, some quotes from John D. Rockefeller. Not that quotes prove everything, but I think this is emblematic of how our, our ruling class used to approach the United States. John D. Rockefeller, of course, founder of Standard Oil, was uh, in some aspects, perhaps the richest man in all of American history, particularly if you look at it in terms of uh, percentage of GDP at the time, a relatively young, uh, small economy, uh, and his wealth was astronomical. Um, John D. Rockefeller saw his, uh, his organization, Standard Oil, broken up. I'll get to that more later because I think we need more of that kind of antitrust activity now in the United States. But John D. Rockefeller, if you ever get the chance to go to Rockefeller Center, in New York City. It's really a magnificent place. Of course, the show 30 Rock is from there. A lot of folks know at Christmas time, the Christmas tree, uh, the ice skating rink. You've certainly seen it on TV a million times if you've never been to Rockefeller Center. It's really an iconic place in American society. Um, but more important than any TV show that happens there or the Rockettes, which are nearby, or, or the ice rink, or the Christmas tree, I believe more important than that is the I Believe uh, plaques, the, the the statues, the marble, the slate of I believe, which is really uh, a treatise that John D. Rockefeller had inscribed permanently there uh, at Rockefeller Center. Here are some of the things that John D. Rockefeller to to give you a sense of what our ruling class was like in the past versus today. Here are some of the things that John D. Rockefeller said: I believe in the supreme worth of the individual and his right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I believe that every right implies a responsibility, every opportunity and obligation, every possession, a duty. Let me repeat that. I believe that every right implies a responsibility, every opportunity and obligation, every possession, a duty. That is John D. Rockefeller. Patriots, I would suggest to you that it is impossible to imagine today 
that Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or Larry Fink uh, would utter those kinds of statements or at least say them and mean them, right? Uh, we simply don't have that kind of ruling class in the United States. And by the way, those are brand sort of name moguls who you probably know. There's lots of sort of nameless, faceless moguls who are really, really important. We don't know their names, but they're the CEOs of Fortune 500 corporations. They are the heads of universities, the president of universities. They're folks whose names are not widely known, but whose influence is vast. And unfortunately, here's the reality, Patriots. They are largely captured and intellectually governed, philosophically governed by aggressive secular humanism. That is the reality. They are not governed by a sense of patriotism and altruism and gratitude to the United States. Number one, the ruling class is not dynamic enough. Number two, it does not have generally a shared sense of purpose, of American exceptionalism, and of patriotic duty to the United States. Hence, the need for populism, for patriotic populist nationalism in the United States. You know, there used to be a phrase in America that what's good for General Motors is good for America. And that was a phrase that was, you know, trite to be sure, but largely true, largely true. What was good for big business generally, uh, you know, more than not was good for the United States. Well, that is not true at all anymore, right? What's good for General Motors or, you know, and of course now that's considered almost an antiquated company, pick much more sort of modern forward-looking companies. What's good for these companies, particularly in big tech, big pharma, big money, uh, is not good for the United States. And it's not because we don't want those workers at those places to thrive. Of course we do. It's because the C-suite executives form, unfortunately, a garbage ruling class in the United States. So part of the reason for populism and part of the reason why it's so necessary now when it wasn't as necessary previously in American history is that the America used to have a far more effective and responsible and laudable ruling class in the United States. And that is gone. It's gone. Now you might say, why is it gone, Cortez? Why is it gone? Well, I mentioned universities. I think one of the reasons is elite universities. Prestigious, uh, highly selective universities have almost totally subscribed to an anti-American, in often cases, actually Marxist vision of governing, of life, of secular humanism. That, that is simply the reality. So part of it is the universities. And then the bigger part probably is just quite frankly, the decline of Judeo-Christian values generally uh, and the, dec the decline of faith, the decline of churches, all of which unfortunately is accelerating post-COVID, post-lockdowns, which were completely unnecessary. And by the way, that's important. When I say post-COVID, it's not that the disease did it. It's really, I hate when people blame the pandemic. It wasn't the pandemic. It was the panic in reaction to the pandemic. Please be aware of that, folks. The pandemic was bad, and it was something to be dealt with, to be sure. It was quite dangerous for people who are already very vulnerable. But the panic became utterly deadly for everyone, right? Maybe not physically deadly, uh, but deadly to our society, deadly to the health of our society, and in some cases, even physically uh, deadly. Because, of course, I think the lockdowns produced even just in that pure sort of narrow range of health, just, hey, what produces the most sickness and death. Well, actually, the lockdowns eventually produce far more than the disease itself. Uh, so that is part of, fortunately, um, of why the the ruling class in the United States is is garbage. 
and cannot be counted on, and we cannot rely on a ruling class to effectively guide society, particularly when the ruling class in the United States continues to amalgamate, to, to, uh, to garner power in a way, in a concentrated way that is unparalleled in American history. You know, I mentioned John D. Rockefeller before. He didn't have one-tenth the power of some of our tech moguls right now because it's not just that they're wealthy. It's the power they exert over American society, the ability to censor, uh, the ability to, to uh, promote their ideas, uh, their twisted ideas as the truth, and to censor those ideas, even if they are true, as supposedly, quote, misinformation. So the amount of power that is vested right now in the, uh, in, in the moguls of tech, it, it's unparalleled in American history. And unfortunately, it is, it is largely residing, is largely uh, implemented and exerted by a garbage ruling class in the United States. That's simply the reality right now. So let's also look at the second aspect of the financialization and, and what that has done to the United States. You know, the financialization of the American economy which is it's hand in glove with globalization. And I'll explain exactly what I mean about that. Uh, it, has, it has resulted in terrible misery for far, far too many Americans. That's just the, the reality right now. And the share of the total economy that regular Americans can earn has been declining for a very, very long time. And as a matter of fact, let's look at a chart on that. So if we go to our chart, this is from the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. It is labor's share of GDP. And if you look at that chart, which goes back decades, you can see that for decades, unfortunately, unfortunately, this has been dropping and dropping quite dramatically. The percentage of the total GDP, of the total output of the United States that is earned by labor, labor's share of GDP. It has been going down for decades. And note there, a couple of arrows that I inserted. One big arrow around 1970. That's when we came off of the gold standard. And the dollar was no longer, to, to mix metaphors or to mix countries, was no longer sound as a pound. Uh, then the other arrow, which I think is even more significant, is right around the year 2000. That's when China entered the World Trade Organization with incredibly generous terms toward Beijing. With the full support, by the way, of the Republican and Democratic parties in the United States. That was a bipartisan failure to allow Beijing, to allow that Chinese communist junta in Beijing to enter the World Trade Organization in 2001. Something that had been promoted by Bill Clinton, something that was implemented by George W. Bush, a bipartisan failure that has been a disaster for the United States. And if you look at that second arrow and look at the descending price action afterward, or it's not price action really, but it's uh, data action afterward, you can see that the United States worker has been taking home a lower and lower share of total GDP for decades, but in a particularly pronounced way over the last couple of decades since the disastrous decision to allow China into the World Trade Organization. So the reality here, patriots, unfortunately, is it's not just in your mind if you think you're working harder just to try to tread water or working harder to actually lose ground financially. You are, and that's revealed by the data and the evidence. And I don't believe it's because American workers uh, aren't putting in the effort. I don't believe it's because you're not willing to be productive enough. It's because the forces of globalization, the forces of the financialization 
of the U.S. economy are working against you. Now, what do I mean by the financialization? I mean prioritizing financial engineering rather than production. And let me be specific what I mean about that and, and give you an example. An example would be stock buybacks. So you have a company, uh, let's say, that makes that makes computers and actually manufactures them in the United States, which, of course, there's not much of, but manufactures computers in the United States. Rather than focusing its profits on making a better computer here, on better, more productive plants, on CapEx, capital expenditures into the United States, hiring more workers, making those workers more productive in the United States. What our system has done in recent decades is it instead rewards uh, that, and again, I'm just making it up. I'm not speaking about a specific computer maker, but uh, rewards the executives of that computer maker by trying the, as best they can to game, game the stock price. And one of the primary ways to do that is buybacks, is taking their profits and buying back their own stock. Now, that might seem innocuous on its face, but it's not. And it was illegal for all of American history until relatively recently. It was illegal because it was considered to be stock market manipulation, that executives shouldn't be able to use what is essentially shareholders' money and, and we hope employee money in terms of bonus pool and that sort of thing and higher pay um, to game the stop, to, to go into the market and manipulate the market for their own purposes, to try to drive the, the stock price up. In some cases, you might say artificially. Well, buybacks were made legal. And in an era, particularly the previous era of lower interest rates, zero interest rates for a very long time, executives focused on buybacks rather than CapEx. And they said, you know what? We're going to make whatever we make, whatever widget we make, whatever it is, Let's make that overseas. Let's make that in China. And what we'll do here is we'll focus on buybacks and financial engineering. That is the financialization of the American economy. Works very, very well uh, for the connected few, for the crony connected few who benefit from it, from those C-suite executives. But it's terrible for the long-term productive health of the American economy. And it's terrible for earnings as shown by that chart. Let's go to another chart. You know, I talked about real wages before. This is real earnings, uh, and this is from Y-Charts. This is real earnings going back five years. So the last chart I showed you goes back many decades. Now let's take it into a slightly more near-term picture. Not a not a near-near term. I'm not showing you just the last few weeks or few months, but let's show you the last five years. So this encompasses a little bit of the pre-COVID panic era, the COVID panic, um, and then right up through the present day. What you can see there, this is this is real earnings. So meaning your pay, your pay adjusted for inflation. And this is using the government's official read on inflation. And I do have some problems with that, but without diving too much or getting too wonky into that of, of whether or not CPI is good or bad, I think it, it, it generally directionally gets inflation right, even if it doesn't get it right sort of to the number. I, you know, I would stipulate that. And the, the directional part is what I'm concerned with here. Um, and if you look on that chart, when the graph is positive, when it is above zero, that means that wages are higher than inflation. So you are getting ahead. It's not just that the number on your paycheck is going up, but the buying power on your paycheck is going up. That's positive real wages. For most of American history, that's been the reality in America, that for most of American history, real wages, even when inflation gets hot, pay goes up more and workers do better. What we saw just recently, and it, ju it just ended, I, I fear we're going to dip right back into it. We, we just dipped out of negative real wages. But what you can see on that chart, 24 straight months, two years straight of crashing real wages under Joe Biden. That has never happened before. As long as we have records, as long as we have data, 
that has never happened before to have 24 consecutive months of declining real wages. Now, the, the purpose of this show, Patriots, though, is not to just get into the, the near-term nitty-gritty of politics. That's important. And by the way, I think it's an incredibly uh, effective, I, I think, and, and in fact, urgent reason why Joe Biden should no longer be president of the United States. But on this show, what we want to do more than anything is dive into the, the bigger picture, you know, the, the systemic and worldview-based rationales for why is this happening, what is the problem? How do we diagnose the problem? How do we identify it? And then how do we get out of the problem? How do we get out of the problem? Because that chart, and I showed you those arrows there where uh, where real wages go negative, that chart, believe me, that is a problem because that is you working harder every single month for your prosperity to go down, for your buying power to go down. And I would submit to you, getting back to our broad theme of why populism, if you ask me why populism, if I could only give one data-based reason, if I could only give you one person and one example, it would be Larry Fink. If, you could, if I could only give you one data set, it would be real wages. What has happened to real wages in this country? That is why populism. That is why we need economic populist nationalism. And again, I'm going to get to, as I always do, get to the solutions, not just identify the problem, but get to the solutions. How do we get out of this mess? How do we fix this? Why is populist nationalism particularly economic populist nationalism, the reality. So continuing on with another chart, and don't worry, I won't overwhelm you with too many charts, I promise. But I think a few charts uh, is very important. It's important because, again, always base our arguments in evidence and data, and particularly when we're talking about something that can be expressed numerically very well, which mo most economic points can, then let's use the numbers. Let's actually go to the numbers. I come from the world of Wall Street, uh, I think that gives me a lot of insight into what Wall Street is doing, both positive and negative. Uh, but it also trained me, before I got into the world of politics and media, it, it, it trained me to make sure that every argument better be backed uh, by numbers. And it, your argument may not be right. You, you may still make a bad bet on the markets. You may still make a bad or poor asset allocation portfolio decision. But at least it is going to be based in something tangible um, and in something that is objective. Okay, that's that's incredibly important. You see very little of that in politics. I've learned that since I got into politics when that orange guy came down the escalator back in 2015. I'm still relatively new in the world of politics after a pretty long career on Wall Street. And one thing I bring to that career in politics and media is an insistence that we rely more on numbers, less on sloganeering. And we don't see enough of that, unfortunately, in Washington, D.C. We sure don't see enough of it in the corporate media. By the way, corporate media, where I think very few people even understand these issues in the first place, okay? If they do understand them, they don't have the honesty to deliver it to you straight. So I, you know, I think there's there's both incompetence and dishonesty, uh, more incompetence and dishonesty, but a combination of the two. And what it results in is you getting terrible information and, and information which contradicts your own life. I mean, that's the thing. You know it. You, it's very hard to spin people about their own bank account. They know that they can't afford the things they need in their lives. Very hard to spin them on that. Uh, nonetheless, corporate media tries. But again, getting to this, uh, this topic of, of data and evidence. Let's look at a pie chart here, and it quite literally looks like a pie, from the St. Louis Fed. And this shows us the, and by the way, St. Louis Fed, if you're ever looking for economic uh, data, they give a lot of data out for free. Uh, you, you know, your organization, you pay for the Fed. Uh, St. Louis Fed has a lot of very good uh, data on, their, on their, their website. So 
This is wealth distribution in the United States. And as you can see there, literally, and, and you know, looks like a pie, it is a pie chart. The top 10% controls 76% of wealth. The next 40%, underneath that top 10, then the next 40%, 22%. So that gives you the top half. The bottom half, 1% of all wealth. Now, you might say, hey, Cortez, you're starting to sound a little socialist on me, right? Are you saying that we need to redistribute that wealth? No. Hell, hell no. I am not saying that we need to expropriate wealth, that we need to take it and redistribute it. Okay, that is that is socialist or even communist, right? Depending on basically how uh, onerous the government authority and the tyranny gets. No, not socialism, not communism, not in any sense. What I am saying is we don't have real capitalism. We don't have real free enterprise in this country. We have a crony capitalism. We have a perverted form of sort of gangster capitalism. We have an oligarchy that is operating in the United States with largely protected mega corporations that do not foster free enterprise. And by the way, as, as evidence of my position, I would hearken back to the late Milton Friedman, who was a hero of free enterprise economics and really almost a sort of a godfather or an evangelist of capitalism. Milton Friedman would say very often and very correctly that the interests of big business are very often not the interests of free enterprise, and in fact, can often be in complete opposition, can be antithetical to each other. Why? Because big business always wants to protect its position. It wants rules and regulations and structures that protect its inherent leading position. And so very, very often, being pro-business, particularly big business, means you're actually anti-free enterprise. So I'm saying, we're not. I don't want to break this pie up through force, through compulsion, through the government taking wealth and trying to spread it out to that bottom half. No, no. Through opportunity, through real free enterprise, and through protectionism, something that has been a bad word in a lot of sort of right-wing or Republican circles and shouldn't be. I'll talk more about protectionism and what I mean by that. I don't mean a paternalistic kind of protectionism. I mean a smart kind of protectionism that protects American industry, protects American interests against predatory trade, for example, from China, against the abuses of our own American corporations versus American citizens and in the political process. I believe in that kind of protectionism. So it's not redistribution by compulsion. Okay, It's not socialism. It's not communism that I'm advocating for. But it is subsidiarity, which is a philosophy, if you haven't heard of, which essentially says, and, and G.K. Chesterton writes and, and spoke a lot about this in his life, about, uh, about subsidiarity, about making sure that all power, all decisions are made at the lowest possible, broadest spread out level. Meaning a decision that can be made by city hall in your local town should not be made in your state capital, certainly should not be made in Washington, D.C., Meaning that a nation with broadly dispersed economic prosperity, with very successful small and medium-sized firms, with successful shops, is far better for society than an economy that is dominated by an increasingly concentrated winner-take-all group of incredibly powerful and interconnected corporations. Okay, That's what subsidiarity argues for. So it's not socialism, it's subsidiarity. Another term that sometimes uses distributivism. Um, again, same principle, that what we should be concerned with is creating the conditions for the most broadly dispersed prosperity possible in American society. Not through compulsion, 
but through creating the right conditions and recognizing my populist friends, I hope I'm winning you over to populism, recognizing that the oligarchs have gamed the system in exactly the opposite way, that they are not winning fairly, okay? That they are winning by design, by corruption, that that is the reality right now. And I think, again, you see it nowhere more starkly than those three spheres of big tech, big pharma, and big money. There are other aspects, of course, but I think those are the most significant, most economically, culturally, and politically powerful forces in America where we are seeing a concentration of power like we have never seen before. And again, as I said previously, a concentration of power among a group of power brokers, a group of oligarchs who are garbage, who do not in any sense share our values, who do not subscribe in any sense to a populist, patriotic, or even forget populist, to a patriotic vision of America, who do not in any sense subscribe to American exceptionalism. They view that as, as some sort of parochialism um, you know, or some sort of almost bigotry or prejudice or xenophobia. That's the, that's the reality of how our garbage ruling class views the world, views the United States right now. And it's certainly how they view working class people in this country. Rather than believing that because of their success, because of their privilege, whether it was totally earned or inherited or, or luck or some combination of the above, rather than, er, than viewing that success as an obligation to other people, the way I think John D. Rockefeller did, uh, and certainly the way he at least talked about it, even if you don't believe he meant it, he certainly spoke very forcefully about it, um, instead of viewing it as an obligation, that success, they view it as an opportunity, unfortunately, to suppress and subjugate regular working class Americans. And they view themselves in this effort as being very much in cahoots with fellow travelers the world over, with the, 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 the folks who subscribe to the World Economic Forum, who hang out in Davos, who believe in that worldview, who are deeply interconnected with the World Trade Organization, with the World Health Organization, with sort of the, the pan-nationalist multilateral uh, uh, alphabet agencies, which have done so much harm to the United States. That's the reality right now of what our power brokers uh, believe in the United States. Let's, let's look at one more chart on this point. It's, and it's similar to the, to the pie chart that I showed you. Um, but this one is, it regards wages rather than uh, rather than over time, wages over time, rather than wealth. This is from the Economic Policy Institute, uh, which I will be the first to admit is a is a populist left think tank. Now, I don't agree with most of their prescriptions, but I agree with a lot of their diagnoses of the problems because the populist left and populist right share a lot of the angst in terms of the issues we're worried about, you know, particularly economically. Now, they have an entirely different answer uh, than we do on the populist right. But still, EPI produces some pretty good work, and I think this is one of them. And let me show you, you know, numerically, what has happened. I mean, what is the reality right now in America with wages? And that chart goes back all the way to the late 1970s and shows you the growth in wages over time, over four decades of wage growth. The top 0.1%, not 0. Excuse me, not 1.0, 0.1. The top 0.1%, their wages have risen 465% since the late 1970s. The top 1%, 1.0%, let's move the decimal, their wages have risen 206%. The bottom 90%, everyone else, okay? So we've got the tiny, tiny elite, the quite elite at 1%, the bottom 90%, the vast majority of Americans in the last 40 years, wages 
up 29%. 460, 465 versus 206 versus 29. So that chart alone, in my view, is emblematic of a significant problem in American society. And again, the fix is not compulsion. The fix is not government control of the economy. The fix is breaking apart these oligarchs. And I'll get more specific about the solutions coming ahead. But the other point is, patriots, I believe this firmly. Their populism is almost inevitable at this point, given that kind of situation, given the concentration of economic power, given how badly the, the regular folks are faring, given the anxiety out there, the valid anxiety. It's not a concocted anxiety. Um, or you know some imagined gr uh, grievance that working class people have. No, given the legitimate, real, valid grievances of working class people in this country, I would submit to you that populism is inevitable. It's a matter of whether or not it will be populism of the left or populism of the right. And of course, I'm advocating very strongly that it will be populism of the right, that it will be economic populist nationalism combined with cultural conservatism. And that that powerful combination that is the, the, the dual alignment which will dominate American politics, which will dominate, I hope, American life, American culture, because it's, it's, it's key to politics, but it's also bigger than politics. And that's the reality. And that, in my view, uh, will be what can save this republic. That is teetering, quite frankly. And I think we need to be honest about that. The American republic is teetering right now. I mean, I think, in, in, I think a lot of you know this intrinsically, even if you haven't necessarily... Uh, looked into it in, in, in depth regarding you know, sort of the numbers. You know something's terribly wrong. You know that life isn't getting better in the United States by many metrics, not just economic, of course, culturally, otherwise, crime, many metrics. Morally, you know that life isn't getting better, that, uh, that we are not living up to our promise, that it's not the country that our parents had or that we had in our younger days. Um, but we can't get despondent about that. We need to figure out, well, Okay, how do we fix it? And I believe we fix it through populism. Now, uh, let's continue with this theme uh, because I think this is important too regarding the, uh, the garbage elites and, and, the, and the politics, you know, really of populism, the, the politics of populism. One of the smarter folks out there, and I don't know if he would call himself a populist or not, but I, you know, he certainly would call himself a conservative or a right-winger. One of the smartest folks out there doing some really important works fighting against our garbage ruling class is Chris Rufo. And in this clip that we're going to play in a moment, Chris Rufo really indicts the Pritzker family specifically because the Pritzkers, I would hold out to you, and I talked about Larry Fink earlier as sort of exhibit A of the reason to be populist and to reject globalism. Well, uh, the Pritzkers, I would say within the political sphere would be exhibit A um, of why we must reject the Marxists. And they are Marxists who currently dominate the radical Democrat Party of the 2020s. This is not your parents' or your grandparents' Democratic Party. Those days of being sort of old-school liberals who were pro-union, uh, basically pro-church, those days are long gone. That party no longer exists. Instead, what we have today is a party dominated by people like the Pritzkers. They are quite dominant themselves as a family, as one of the wealthiest families in America. Um, but even outside of their own direct influence, they are representative of the larger dominance of oligarchs, of secular humanist Marxists in the Democratic Party. So let's have a listen to Chris Rufo. So how did the trans movement suddenly move from the fringes to the center of public life? 
because they built one of the most sophisticated ideological pipelines in American politics. It begins with a flood of cash. In recent years, some of the wealthiest people in the country have spent enormous sums of money subsidizing the trans movement. Jennifer Pritzker is one of them. Pritzker, born James Pritzker in 1950, served a career in the United States military and inherited a sizable part of the Hyatt Hotel fortune. In 2013, Pritzker announced a male-to-female gender transition. The newspaper celebrated Pritzker as the first trans billionaire. And almost immediately, Pritzker began donating untold millions to universities, schools, hospitals, and activist organizations to promote queer theory and trans medical experiments. Meanwhile, Pritzker's cousin, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, signed legislation pushing radical gender theory in the state education curriculum and directing state Medicaid funds towards transgender surgeries. Here's Governor Pritzker speaking to an audience of trans activists. Tonight I'm here to say that our state government is firmly on your side. We're gonna make sure that all transgender Illinoisans are ensured their basic human rights and that healthcare services are provided to them so that they can thrive. So they can thrive. So they can thrive. Did you hear that there from Governor Britsker? And by the way, uh, used to be my governor. Uh, I was chased out of Illinois, chased out of Chicago, largely by him, by people like him, people like Lori Lightfoot, the former governor, or excuse me, uh, mayor of Chicago, who, by the way, has been replaced, believe it or not, by a more radical mayor, by Brandon Johnson. Um, you know, they went from getting beaten in the head to saying, well, why don't you just beat me all over the body um, in Chicago? And uh, I, I laugh, by the way, the situation is not funny, but sometimes if you couldn't laugh, you'd cry about what has happened in my beloved Chicago, a place where I raised a family and lived for 25 years in the city, was chased out of there by terrible leadership, failed leadership that is ruining a once great American city and ruining an entire state. It's not just confined to the city of Chicago because J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, who you saw there, uh, he is doing his damn best and unfortunately being quite effective at it, at ruining the state of Illinois. And his influence, though, and his family's influence extends far beyond Illinois and particularly into some of the worst cultural offenses uh, being committed right now in the United States against children, specifically this cult of transgenderism, which has become... Um, in many ways, a state-sponsored religion. And when I say state-sponsored, I mean, look at the pronouncements out of the White House right now regarding transgenderism, particularly for kids. Uh, and by the way, I have nothing but empathy for young people who are confused. And young people are often confused, right? And sometimes it's just mild confusion. Sometimes it's something much more serious, as in somebody saying, I reject the body that I was born into, or I, I have a belief that God somehow created me incorrectly. Um, that's a tragic kind of confusion, and it's one that has to absolutely be dealt with, that should be dealt with by family and therapists and pastors and priests, uh, something that should not be dealt with through chemical castration to stop the normal development of sex organs in the human body of a child, something that should never be dealt with through surgical mutilation to permanently change somebody's body, to, to alter and mutilate their body in ways that are irreversible, and yet those kinds of procedures and that kind of worldview has been exalted into a, into a sort of state religion. Well, that state religion didn't come out of nowhere. And much of it, both philosophically and financially, flows from the Pritzker family. So, you know, as if it's not enough 
that J.B. Pritzker was, in my view, the worst governor in America on COVID. I know there's a lot of competition out there. I know Cuomo was horrific in New York when he was still there. Hulk still you know, terrible now. I know Gavin Newsom. And, and there's a lot of people, unfortunately, vying for that ignoble prize of worst COVID governor, worst panic governor possible. But in my view, and again, I'm biased because I lived there, it was J.B. Pritzker, somebody who uh, really just inflicted pain, pain, economic pain, um, educational pain upon children, something we talked about a lot in a previous episode about the, the, uh, how much children were unfortunately at the forefront of, of, uh, of, as victims of the misbegotten policies, the cruel policies of the COVID panic. J.B. Pritzker was at the front uh, of all of that. But his family is also, in many ways, uh, the, the beginning of this entire transgender cult as shown there by Chris Rufo. And so J.B. Pritzker says, so that they can thrive. No, there's nothing thriving about taking a child who is struggling, who is confused, and then trying to permanently validate that confusion. There's, there's nothing thriving about that. And I would, again, use this as, a, as a number, another exhibit of our garbage ruling class in the United States. Our garbage ruling class, which promotes cultural rot and filth throughout American society. Does it through the powers of government? Does it through financial power? And in the case of the Pritzker family, is doing both, unfortunately. And also does it through political manipulation. Now let's get you know more, a little more deeply into the political side of this because I think this is very important. You might say, well, Cortez, you know, look, we've, you, you conceded, we've always had a ruling class. We've always had powerful people. They've always had a lot of sway in politics. You know, what's different now? Well, other than the fact that the worldview is in, so incredibly different, what I would point to you is their ability to manipulate politics right now is unparalleled in American history. And I would point here specifically to Zuckerberg. What Zuckerberg did in the 2020 election knows no parallel in all of American histories. Uh, spent at least $300 million, perhaps more than $400 million on effectively staging a private takeover of the public election apparatuses, the public agencies of elections in the key counties in the swing states of the United States. Now, he did it under the guise of health, under the guise of, oh, we're just here to help. We're just here to promote voting. Anyway, anytime a mogul like that says, anytime an oligarch like Zuckerberg says that, of course, you should immediately buck up and, and bow up and realize uh, that he has far more nefarious aims. And of course, he did. And there's a lot of talk about whether or not the 2020 election was valid or whether or not it was, it was stolen. I am not a person who gets into the Dominion voting machines at all. I've never been convinced that there's systemic issues there. But I absolutely know, 100% know, that the intervention of Zuckerberg directly in the process of voting and voting procedures under the guise of supposedly protecting the health of the United States absolutely changed the election outcome in key states, especially places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where I think he was most active and most effective. So was the election stolen? I don't really like that term. I much prefer the term rigged. Another way, of course, in which Zuckerberg and his allies rigged the 2020 election was through hiding and suppressing what we now know to be factually correct information, that the laptop from hell was indeed Hunter Biden's and that the allegations contained therein point directly to the, quote, big guy, Joe Biden. And I'm not bringing this up, folks, because I don't want to do a deep dive 
into the issues of 2020. I don't want to relitigate that right now, although I think that's a fascinating topic and something I know a lot about as a senior advisor to the Trump 2020 campaign, somebody who was who was intensely involved in all of those uh, in all of those aspects and all of those crises as they as they unfolded into the election and then after the election, have a lot to say and I think a lot of uh, unique insight on those topics. But that's not the main point of this episode. My point rather is to let you know that another reason, another reason why populism, well, yet another reason is that the inordinate political sway and political prowess of corrupt people like Zuckerberg, like Pritzker, uh, it is unparalleled in American history. And it is time, therefore, for us to reclaim our republic. It is our republic. I don't believe it's too late. I don't. I don't think it's too late to save this republic, but dang, the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking and the hour is late. It's not too late, but the hour is late. And we need, we need to act. We need to be fully, fully educated and we need to really, really act. Now, let me tell you some people who don't get that, who don't get what time it is uh, right now in America. Let's go to the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal, folks, is a publication that I've been reading since high school. I'd like to think it's one of the reasons that I'm right wing is the Wall Street Journal. And I still think there's some fantastic articles there, uh, but it is thoroughly globalist in its orientation and it is increasingly establishment um, in its application and its sort of practical recommendations, particularly when it comes to the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. It is certainly not populist. It is in many ways the anti-populist establishment paper for the United States. And again, I think there's some very good work there. Uh, I cite it quite a lot in my articles. Uh, read it still diligently, even though I increasingly disagree with its conclusions. But this, this is important because let's talk about people who don't get what time it is in America. Folks, it's a lot of Republicans. It's a lot of our so-called allies. It's a lot of conservatives who don't realize what time it is in America, don't know that we are losing our republic, or if they do know it, which would be even worse, they refuse to acknowledge it and refuse to prescribe appropriate action to reclaim our republic. I still read real physical newspapers, by the way, which I guess shows you that I'm a bit of an old man. Uh, not a grumpy old man, but a bit of an old man. And uh, this article recently in the Wall Street Journal, we'll show it to you there. The GOP can't afford to indulge populism. It's written by John Danforth, who was Republican senator from the state of Missouri. Thankfully, is no longer senator from the great state of Missouri. They actually have some fantastic senators. But the GOP can't afford to indulge populism. And uh, the, the picture there that they're contrasting is Mike Pence and Josh Hawley. And they really are, I think, both generationally and philosophically, the two separate ends of the spectrum, with Josh Hawley being the populist nationalist and Mike Pence representing the globalist establishment. And by the way, Mike Pence, I'm not being unfair to Mike Pence. He didn't write the article. I'm not being unfair to him just because his picture was in here because Mike Pence actually tweeted out, he posted on social media this article. He clearly believes in this. He thinks populism is a risk to the United States and is a danger to the Republican Party rather than being the path forward uh, toward reclaiming our republic. And so let me read you a couple of quotes here from this article. The first one, populist politicians promote themselves as fighters they aggressively wage culture wars and stoke grievance. It's from John C. Danforth, former senator from the state of Missouri in the Wall Street Journal. They aggressively wage culture wars and stoke grievance, to which I say guilty as charged. Now, with a, with a, with a, with a small disclaimer, we didn't start the culture war, okay? 
we didn't start the culture war, like Billy Joel, we didn't start the fire. Okay, we didn't start the culture war. The left is waging an active, ongoing, vicious culture war against us, and they are winning. As a matter of fact, they are piling up wins against us in the culture war. So we didn't start the culture war, but are we fighting back now? Absolutely. You better damn believe it. We are fighting back in the culture war because we have woken up and we have realized we're not woke, but we've woken up and we have realized that the left has captured so many critical institutions in American society. We realize that the garbage ruling class in America is inflicting pain and misery upon regular American citizens. We realize that the garbage ruling class in the United States acts in its own self-interest almost exclusively to the detriment of our American Republic and the prosperity and well-being and rights of regular Americans. And we are absolutely fighting back. And it says, stoke grievance. Do we have grievances? Yes, we have grievances. We have grievances. And those grievances are valid. They are valid. They are justified and they are necessary. They're not sufficient because it has to be a jumping off point rather than an end in and of itself. The grievance can't be where we stay, but the grievance is a motivator and it is a jumping off point to fixing and reclaiming our republic. Let me get specific to on a policy application here because this same article also continues in the Wall Street Journal. Populists have injected an isolationist element into the party, an isolationist element into the party. I hear say once again, guilty. Absolutely. Now, isolationism carries a connotation with it that I don't necessarily want to embrace. I don't necessarily want us to call ourselves isolationists because that at least implies a naivete, right? Where we don't believe that America has a place in the world um, and where we are uh, in, in some childish way believe ourselves immune to the forces of the world or to the dangers of the world. That is not, of course, what populist nationalism believes. But we do certainly believe, and I think this is the reality of what he calls, John Danforth calls isolationism. We believe in a, in a foreign policy of realism and restraint. And we are totally tired of constant, needless wars and interventions all over the world, which serve the interests of the ruling class to the grave detriment of regular Americans. And do we insist um, on, on, on an America first, and that's not just a Trump phrase, it's not just a political phrase, do we insist on America first foreign policy of realism and restraint? Yeah, you sure bet we do. Absolutely. Uh, and we insist that the culture war, which is being waged uh, in a vicious way against Americans, that it be repelled and that it be defeated for our sake and for the sake of our children. Because here's the thing too, Getting back to this topic of isolationism and, and, and war, remember this, constant war serves the elites. It does. It serves their interests. It serves the ruling class. Why? Well, they're not sending their sons and daughters. They're not the people who generally populate the armed forces of the United States. Uh, but they are, in many cases, the owners of the businesses that benefit. They are the benefactors of the think tanks in Washington, D.C., in the garbage foreign policy apparatus, the garbage foreign policy uh, center of the United States that pushes these endless wars, that views the world as a chessboard to be managed rather than taking a dispassionate look in the world and only protecting vital American interests. This is the same group of people right now who are aggressively pushing 
needless escalation in Ukraine, a war which involves no, it's a regional ethnic battle, ancient ethnic battle that involves no discernible U.S. national security interest. It, war serves the elites. It serves the ruling class, but it is misery for regular Americans. And so do we reject constant war? Yes, you're damn right we do. And by the way, is this a key part? Was it a, a driving beginning of our movement ascending to the national stage? Yeah, it sure was. And let me give you some evidence of that. And this is, believe it or not, from the University of Minnesota. You know, listen, I wouldn't put many uh, quotes up on the screen from large you know, universities because generally, of course, in terms of worldview, you know, we're, we're on completely polar opposite pages. But in this case, I think this is fascinating. And I'm, I'm surprised and pleased that a couple of professors, one uh, from Boston University and one from University of Minnesota, did a study very shortly after the 2016 election of Donald Trump, which was the biggest upset probably in all of American history, an upset that I was very proud to participate in. I was very proud to be a spokesman for him, to be one of his leading voices, particularly when it came to the opposition media, always sent me to CNN, to MSNBC, uh, to Chris Wallace at Fox News, to the to the hardest, worst interviews to get grilled and to, to, to give it right back uh, to the corrupt corporate media. Very proud to be part of that election, that triumph in 2016, when this movement of populist nationalism ascended to national, uh, to the national level, and and a study done by these professors who were curious about it, unlike a lot of folks on the left. I don't even know that they're leftists, but I'm just saying academia in general, being very leftist, were curious about it and and what drove this election, you know, particularly in the key swing states, and they determined, um, and they give great. It's a very long report if you care to read it. Uh, they determined, though, through significant data analysis and statistical observation, that the single determining force that swung these swing states, which had been reliably Democrat, into the Republican column in the upper Midwest, that it was an aversion to war uh, that most of all was predictive in which one of those counties, which one of those towns, and then ultimately which one of those states were to fall into uh, the winning column for Donald Trump. I think that's that's fascinating. Here's a, a quote from them from Professors Shen and Kreiner, Professor Shen at Minnesota and Kreiner at BU. Quote, a significant and meaningful relationship exists between a community's rate of military sacrifice and its support for Donald J. Trump. Between its rate of military sacrifice. And the way that they quantified military sacrifice, by the way, was by the incidence of casualty by the casualty rate of residents and relatives of uh, by, by residents of that area and by the relatives of those who had sustained casualties in the wars, the needless wars that were propagated by our garbage ruling class overseas. The higher that rate, the higher the casualty rate, particularly in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, the higher that casualty rate, the more likely those places were to switch their votes. People who had voted for Barack Obama, in many cases, voted for him twice communities and counties who had voted for him twice, who switched their vote to then vote for Donald Trump, motivated and animated by a populist idea that these endless wars being propagated by the garbage ruling class of the United States were harmful to our country. They were not sustaining or improving the, the vital national security interests of the United States, and they were doing enormous harm to our country, both in terms of blood and treasure massive financial costs 
uh, but even more important, terrible human costs, both the lives lost as well as the lives harmed and in some cases ruined of those who didn't die, but are permanently injured, whether it is physically or mentally. In those cases, patriots, unfortunately, are in the tens of thousands. The total number dead, it's hard to get an exact number because so many who were killed were contractors, but we know that it's roughly in the area of 8,000 killed in those needless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Not to mention, by the way, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis killed, hundreds of thousands of them in a completely needless war, perhaps into the millions, according to some reasonable projections. Misery, misery spread all over Iraq, misery spread all over the United States. Why? Because the globalists, the power brokers of the United States in industry, in Washington, D.C., in the foreign policy establishment of Washington, D.C., all determined for some reason that it made sense post 9-11 to attack Iraq, which, of course, made no sense at all. Now, thankfully, again, we've had an awakening. We've had an awakening. People are aware, and there is tremendous pushback right now, finally, at last. I wish it had developed sooner uh, against this interventionism in Ukraine, where I think we have even greater risks because there uh, we are involving ourselves needlessly escalating a, a, a struggle against a nuclear power. In fact, at least by some measures, the biggest nuclear power in the world uh, with even more warheads than the United States. So an awakening there. But but the antidote to all of that, the, the, the fix, the solution is populism. So solutions, let's talk about solutions. I love, I love solutions, okay? We can't, too many people on the right, we are understandably angry. And that anger is righteous, but we can't stay there. We can't wallow in it. We have to get to the place of, okay, what are, and actionable solutions, practical solutions, things that can be done, okay? Not pie in the sky. Well, you know, someday, you know, four elections off, you know, we might achieve X, Y, Z. It's okay to have those grand goals, I guess. But I'm much more into, okay, what can be done? What can be done today? What can be done into this next election cycle? What can I do in my community, my family, my church, my community? Uh, what can be done? So solutions, uh, to globalism and 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 policy applications and prescriptions that back populism. The first one is protectionism, which I mentioned earlier. Protectionism, it's not a dirty word. It's been considered a dirty word by too many people on the right, certainly by too many people in Republican uh, circles. But protectionism simply means that we are going to protect the interests of American workers. We're going to protect an American worker, for example, and I view it two ways, not just trade, but also culturally. We're going to protect an American worker from being subjected to a struggle session where some hourly worker who happens to be white is going to be told through a program that is mandatory at their company, and this is being done at a lot of companies, places like Walmart, places like CVS, going to be told that they have white privilege. Okay, we're going to protect them from that kind of indoctrination as a condition of employment. We're going to protect them from a jab requirement of the Fauci jab requirement uh, as work. So that that level of that aspect of protectionism, but then also the more traditional sense of protectionism, of, of trade protectionism. We are not going to allow the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, to manipulate American markets through predatory trade practices because it comes into markets with no intention in many of these cases in even making a profit, but simply to grab market share and drive out American production. We are going to protect American industry against that. So embrace protectionism. And we do it two ways. Number one, Carrot and stick. The carrot side is make America uh, as hospitable to free enterprise as possible. So let's, let's create the conditions for companies to thrive here and to produce here, whatever it is, whether it's old school, tangible goods manufacturing, or whether it's software development, whether it's services side, but produce here. So that's the, the, the carrot side. The stick side is tariffs. 
And we need more tariffs and we need bigger tariffs and we need more effective tariffs to say we are going to protect the United States, particularly as it relates to China. We do not have reciprocity, meaning our markets are open to them, to their goods and services. Their markets are not open to us. Well, the way you get reciprocity when you're dealing with a bully uh, is only through strength. Bullies don't respond to weakness. They don't respond to reason. They respond to strength. Schoolyard bully responds to you being ready to fight, in some cases, actually delivering the blow. Well, let's deliver the economic blow, the trade blow through tariffs. I mentioned earlier antitrust. I really believe that antitrust needs to be revitalized in this country. This might not be considered a conservative ideal, but it should be. We need to go back to the conservatism, to the populism of Teddy Roosevelt. So yes, I'm invoking a Roosevelt, not FDR, TR. We need to, to uh, wake up the ghost of Teddy Roosevelt when it comes to policy, and we need aggressive antitrust. These massive corporations Many of them need to be broken up. Big asset management absolutely needs to be broken up because it, it exerts such unbelievable inordinate power in American society. These companies need to be broken up. Buybacks need to be banned, as I mentioned earlier. That would do an enormous amount of good for this country in terms of de-emphasizing financial engineering and, and instead compelling investment and persuading investment in capital expenditures and improving the productivity of American workers and building American plants. That's how we get onshoring, enough of offshoring. Another aspect here, which you might not think of in populism, but I, I suggest you should, is the universities. Universities have played an outsized role. And, and Patriots, let me be the first to tell you, when I really first saw the nonsense of universities, and I became aware of it, I think, you know, sort of in a serious way in the 1990s, and I think it goes way back to the 60s and even before, but for me, at least, I started noticing it in the 90s when I was still a you know, student and a Wall Street guy, not involved in politics, but I always assumed, I naively and correctly assumed that, okay, they can sort of have their nonsense, have your little leftist fairy tale, your secular humanist, you know, nonsense in the academy. Once these students go into the real world, you know, the nonsense will stop, cold water will hit them in the face, and none of this will matter. There won't be an import for a broader society. And boy, was I wrong. Um, and historically, by the way, I should have known better because I am a student of history. And historically, universities have always been in countries all over the world at the forefront of the vanguard of political movements, particularly political movements on the left. And once we allow the left to capture universities in this country, uh, we should have known that those they were sowing the seeds uh, to reap that secular humanist, leftist, Marxist harvest later, and uh, and reaping it they are uh, with unfortunate success. So uh, I fear that a lot of us on the right are late to the game. Again, I'll self-confess. I'm late to it. We're late to the game, but it doesn't mean we can't act, and it doesn't mean we can't help fix things. One of the ways to do it, uh, really, I think there's two main ways, but the, the first way is to start taxing these university endowments. You know, these massive... Uh, endowments for schools like Harvard, you know, all of the Ivy League schools, all of the uh, Ivy League or Ivy League adjacent schools, places like Stanford and University of Chicago and Rice University, they have absolutely mammoth endowments. And in many ways, you know, I, I kind of joke in a lot of past writing and interviews, but I mean it, that they're really hedge funds that have a small school attached to them. That's really how they operate. But they get complete charity, nonprofit tax treatment, and they don't deserve it, number one. They're, uh, they're inflicting grave harm upon the United States. But number two, they're not really acting as charities in any of the traditional sense of, of the word. And so they, they need to be taxed and taxed aggressively their endowments. I also believe portions of their endowments should be seized uh, to pay 
for the student loan debacle that we have right now in the United States, where millions of American students have debt that they have a hard time sustaining for a degree that is largely worthless to them. Well, the universities have no skin in the game, and they should. Um, but the the second aspect is to stop subsidizing these universities. And a lot of people don't realize, you might think, well, you know, my state school is not so bad. I'm talking mainly about the private schools, state schools as well, but a lot of people don't realize just how much we subsidize private universities in the United States. And as a matter of fact, paradoxically, the wealthier the school, you know, including the Ivy Leagues, the wealthier the school, the more we subsidize them, believe it or not, in terms of both direct grants uh, as well as tax preferential subsidies. It's and a whole host of, of ways in which we massively, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars a year, subsidize these either directly or indirectly these universities. And Adam Ajewski at Open the Books has done tremendous work on this, on showing you just how much we subsidize these universities. So let's stop, let's stop paying for the institutions, the purveyors of cultural rot who are causing such problems in the United States. So these, these are some of the solutions, folks, on the cultural side, the economic side. So I want to wrap up with this. You know, why, why populism? Again, pay attention. Listen to what Larry Fink says. You know, Maya Angelou, somebody you probably don't expect me to quote because she was certainly somebody of a you know liberal, if not leftist, leanings, but I think she was an incredible writer, uh, a great poet, even though I don't agree with her philosophy. Maya Angelou had a, had a great statement once where she said, uh, when people tell you who they are, believe them the first time. Well, Larry Fink is telling you who he is. The globalists are telling you who they are. They're not hiding Davos from us, for example. Uh, Joe Biden is not hiding his agenda from us. The Pritzker family and what they want to do to children, the way they want to pervert children, the things they did during COVID, the things that they intend to do into the future, they're not hiding any of this. It's in front of us. Okay, So it's not a, it's not a hidden conspiracy. It's, it's right in front of us. So they've told us who they are. Let's follow Maya Angelou's dictate. Let's believe them. Let's follow her admonition. Let's believe them. Let's believe them the first time. And let's take appropriate action because it is our country. It is our republic still. But the hour is late and the clock is ticking. And is it savable? Yes, it is savable. But are we running out of time? Yeah, we are really, really running out of time. So for our sake, for our children's sake, and someday for the next generation who's not yet arrived for their sake. Let's save this republic. And we are going to do it through enlightened, populist, nationalism, Americanism.